I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of News Beat. Today, we're doing something a little different. In light of the horrific slayings of African Americans in recent months, we've decided to re-release one of our most powerful drops to date. It's called Why We Riot. It's our first award-winning episode, an examination of the racist, institutionalized inequalities threaded into the very fabric of American society that forces historically oppressed and tormented communities of color to inevitably rise up in rebellion. It features activists Rosa Clemente, former Green Party vice presidential candidate, renowned intellectual and Harvard University professor Dr. Cornell West, and Lawrence Larry Ham, chairman of the Newark, New Jersey-based nonprofit the People's Organization for Progress. The stories they tell are, sadly, hugely relevant today. And just as the pent-up pain and torment erupted into the streets of Baltimore, Newark, and dozens of other cities across the United States in the 1960s, Minneapolis is currently the scene of large-scale protests and demands for justice in the wake of the recent killing of George Floyd, an unarmed, handcuffed black man by a white police officer. Since fired, but not charged with any crimes as of this release, Officer Derek Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck for several minutes while the 46-year-old gasped for air and howled in pain, crying, I can't breathe. The same desperate plea repeated by Eric Garner, an unarmed black man strangled to death by New York City police officer Daniel Pantaleo nearly six years ago. Floyd's demise is among a string of horrific African-American deaths sparking widespread outrage nationwide. In March, Breonna Taylor was fatally shot at least eight times by cops in Louisville, Kentucky, who barged into her home while she was sleeping. And in February, Ahmaud Arbery was pursued and gunned down by a father and son duo while jogging through a South Georgia neighborhood. It took three months for authorities to charge the men with his murder. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, all victims of what many consider to be modern-day lynchings. And the incredible New Jersey-based fusion outfit The Band Called Fuse provided the musical underbelly of Why We Riot, while its frontman and our artist-in-residence hip-hop firebrand Silent Night delivered incendiary verses, along with bandmates Soul Clock and K. Desiree on vocals. This is an important episode. It's one we wish we didn't have to make in the first place. And it's certainly one that we wish we'll never have to rebroadcast again. But something tells me that we will. For now, please support Newsbeat by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Also, take a moment to leave a rating and review. It, it always helps, gets us noticed. And for more social justice coverage in our unique, compelling, musically-fueled way, visit us at usnewsbeat.com. Once again, this is Why We Riot. I was a kid who was 13 years old. I had no idea this was coming. I had no idea that the upright, there, you know, I wasn't politically conscious at that age and I didn't come from a politically active family. My family were not activists. My father passed when I was four years old. My mother lived with her parents, I lived with them. We lived a regular life, I did live in what at that time was called the ghetto, then it became the inner city, now it's just Newark. By 1967, the community that I lived in was all black. And it was that summer 
I was uh, across the street at my friend's house when we were having a little house party. And somebody ran upstairs and said Springfield Avenue was on fire. Newark, New Jersey became a city of race riots, violence, looting, and hate. For five days, it was a battleground and a looter's paradise. Colored citizens clashed with police, national guardsmen, and state troopers. 24 people were killed and 1,200 injured. Nearly half the city was in the grip of terror. The newer clear-up sparked similar riots in other American centers with hatred near danger point between white and black extremist groups. In Newark, there was an uneasy tension punctuated by minor outbreaks of violence after five days of bloody fighting. The rebellion started on 17th Avenue in front of what is today called the West District Precinct. My house was roughly a mile as the crow flies. The police arrested a black cab driver named John Smith. They took him into the precinct. That precinct had a notorious reputation, people being beaten and killed in there. Initially, when Smith was arrested, and keep in mind that that precinct sat in the heart of a major housing project. At that time, it was the Hayes Homes Project. And right across the street was the um, Stella Wright Project. And right below that was the Scudder Home Project. Within that area, that was said to have been the most densely populated black community in the United States at that time. I mean, there were literally thousands of, I mean, it was like a city unto itself. Those three, because you, you couldn't even tell they were different housing, probably just looked like one great area of projects, all of them about 13 stories high. So the precinct was right in the heart of that. And so people could see from their windows, John Smith being dragged in there. They started dragging me through the streets. And this evidently incensed the uh, people of the community. And a rumor got started that Smith had died, even though representatives of civil rights organizations came to the precinct and met with the police and knew that Smith had not been killed, but he had been beaten. And so there was a demonstration in front of the West District Precinct, which led to a confrontation with the police and that's how the uprising of 1967 began. In Newark, 26 people were killed. And almost all of them conclusively were killed either by the police, the state troopers, or the National Guard. The author Ron Parambo wrote a book called No Cause for Indictment. And in that book, he chronicles how no police or guard, no one was indicted or went to trial for the murder of the people that took place during the rebellion. Now, during the rebellion, the police were saying they were firing because they were being fired upon by snipers. But all the evidence shows that there were no snipers, that what they thought were snipers were police. We should notify somebody up in the National Guard to get word to their men with these rifles that they had when they let loose that thing travels. Firing at each other, <laughs> you know, people who are not familiar with the city. And they killed people. They killed uh, Eloise Spellman, you know, uh, 
while she was standing at her window, like on the seventh or eighth floor of the building that she lived in. You know, we used to have a saying in the, in the Black Power Movement at that time, we call it right around the cornerism. Because all of this was happening and some people were under the impression that a revolution literally was around the corner. When Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, for example, April 4th, 1968, you had over 150 um, mass rebellions around the country. The killing of Martin just was, it was too much. Too much. Couldn't take it anymore. Something snapped. Something snapped, Something snapped inside of all of us. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. So you just don't know when that's going to happen, but this is true all around the world. You got various riots in terms of rebellions against forms of oppression. And uh, it's hard to know what the catalyst is. The deeper causes usually are cumulative. They're structural, they're institutional. The economic, their political, their cultural, vicious stereotypes against peoples and so on. Uh, you know, your Jewish resistance in Poland. Well, of course, that was backs are being pushed against the wall. Palestinians in Gaza against Israeli occupation. Backs are being pushed against the wall. Each one of these, you have distinctive conditions and, and, and circumstances. But there's one button that's pushed. Shh. Can't take it no more. That history starts the moment there was a European who took an African and that African fought back. Our level of civil disobedience is nothing compared to what we used to do almost hundreds of years ago. Whether it was on the continent fighting back, on the slave ship through the Middle Passage, through women throwing themselves off balconies and or committing fratricide so their children wouldn't have to face the horrors of being kidnapped, being enslaved. Like, the civil disobedience, the little bit that we see now, is an expression of people being fed up at one point, but it doesn't encapsulate the entire history of Black people resisting not oppression, but the system of white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy. I mean, we're always going to have civil disobedience. People are going to get tired and they're going to rise up. They're going to rebel. That's United States history, period. But the level of what we see in the streets right now is nothing compared to what we've seen in the past in the streets in America when it comes to how particularly African-American people fight back. We begin this week with so much emotion and unrest all across the country after those devastating shootings. You see some rallies, like this one in Minnesota, did turn violent over the weekend. Dozens of officers injured. This healing is going to be hard. And we have so many striking images to show you. This encounter between a young woman and officers in riot gear in Baton Rouge. And last night, people asking for peace in Los Angeles, protesters joining hands, making a statement as the country mourns the loss of those lives in Louisiana and Minnesota, and of course, those five officers in Texas. Say her name. Say his name. Say their name. Say our name. Why? They say my name wrong in their roll call. They think I should be happy to say it at all. They say I'm only trouble with my road dogs. Most of the time, they only say it behind closed doors. 
They go to neighborhood I can't afford The same me, my two sisters and my dad was born Replaced the family store with a fancy mall Now it's 554 can of corn Got pulled over again Third time this month, it's like a trend Gave me the third degree before they fled Then try to have banter with my white friend I take the train and get stopped and frisk Try to vote and make change, but I got suppressed I pay my aunt's tickets cause she been missing his And I find out the city been targeting since the first offense Another day, another raid now Then the women get knocked, that's okay now Feel like any minute I'm a break Then a new Sega bullet struck a child on the playground a lot of people after the uprising of 2015 looked to history and wanted to know more about the history of Baltimore to figure out how they could make changes that would have lasting impact. And so 50 years from now, we wouldn't be looking back and say, well, we should have made some changes in 2015, and then we wouldn't be in another situation of unrest. While the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, on April the 4th, 1968. In Baltimore, things were pretty quiet until Saturday night, April the 6th. And that is when things really started to heat up in Baltimore City. Around 6 p.m. this evening, groups of teenagers began breaking windows in a small area in East Baltimore. Several fires were started. For the most part, the destruction and disorder in our streets has followed this pattern. However, it has spread and it has become worse. These acts make no sense and serve no purpose except to bring further grief, further hardship, and further disorder to the people of Baltimore. We had um, fires set in different parts of the town. Eventually there would be fires and looting in about 15 different business districts all across the city. Uh, in Baltimore City, we had damages of $12 million, second only to DC. Six people were killed in the unrest in 1968. We have taken the following steps to restore law and order in our state. And you may be sure that the situation is under control and under constant vigilance of state and local authorities. We have proclaimed a state of emergency in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Every available unit of the Maryland National Guard has been fully mobilized and deployed within the city. In addition, at 6-11 this evening, I requested federal reinforcement to further secure the city. Attorney General Ramsey Clark agreed to immediately dispatch the troops. They should now be taking positions in the critical areas. There were a thousand businesses affected here in Baltimore, according to insurance records, and 5,512 people were arrested, mostly for breaking curfew. In Baltimore, mostly, the events lasted between April 6th and April 9th. While today we are pressed to confront force with force, put down violence and douse fires, the lessons of these past hours have not been lost on any of us. We know now, as never before, how vital is the law to our liberty. We know now, as never before, that violence is no friend to freedom and that the mob is no ally of civil rights. It's 
certainly contested as to what were the underlying issues that people were so angry about in 1968 and in 2015. Of course, 2015, the predominant issue was police brutality, and that was not the issue in 1968. In fact, Baltimore was a model and was featured in a Reader's Digest article and published in March 1968 that was talking about community policing that they had put in place, that they were trying to not arrest people, but actually work with people in neighborhoods. They had a major who was black in the police force at that point. So that was something that they were really working on in 1968, and that wasn't a trigger for the unrest. But People look back and say, of course, everyone realized that neighborhoods that had experienced disinvestment were getting very frustrated because you had the Great Society, Lyndon B. Johnson's efforts to put more money into the inner city, to open up housing opportunities, to make it so that people wouldn't be restricted in racially segregated neighborhoods as they had been. The Great Society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. But that change was slow in coming, and so a lot of people think that there was a loss of hope. Peter Levy, in our book, writes about Dr. King talking about what's happening in the other America. And he says, Dr. King says, one America is invested with enrapturing beauty. In it, we can find many things that we can think about in noble terms. In this America, little boys and little girls grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Baltimore, unfortunately, was a pioneer in some of the government policies that created 
segregated neighborhoods, not just here, but where they were a model for cities all across the nation. One of the most shameful things that Baltimore City Council did in 1910 was to pass an ordinance that divided the city into white blocks and black blocks. If you were going to move onto a block, you had to determine the percentage of people of your race that lived on that block. And you couldn't move onto the block if you were going to make the racial balance change, like you were going to make it 51% instead of 49% of what your race was. So that was legally enforceable in Baltimore between 1910 and 1917. And other cities took that same practice until it was said by the Supreme Court that it was unconstitutional. Once those kinds of ideas get in place, that there are certain places, certain blocks, certain developments that Black people live and certain developments that white people live, that was very hard to break. Thankfully, now, of course, those kinds of practices are illegal, but we still see the remnants of that. I think understanding that policy put that in place, policy changed to make it illegal, but policy set the roots of that segregation that still exists in our city makes people understand that policy can undo some of these things too. Early morning, April 12, 2015. Baltimore man Freddie Gray is arrested after a police foot pursuit. Shown here on cell phone video, Gray is in handcuffs as police escort him into the back of a police van. The answer to what kills Gray lies in what happens next. Absolutely, there were underlying social issues that made people take to the streets in 2015. I was sitting in my office and I started to hear rumors from people that there was going to be unrest uh, after on the day that Freddie Gray's funeral took place and the family had asked there not to be demonstrations even in that day, but there were rumors flying that something big was going to happen. And I went and picked up my son at high school. We drove home right past Mondawmin Mall which is where the unrest started. And if you're unfamiliar with Baltimore's bus system, students in Baltimore don't have city buses unless they're special education students. They take the public bus. And Mondawmin Mall is a bus terminal where 5,000 students come into Mondawmin and then spread out to different schools. So they were, at the end of the day, 5,000 students were gonna come on to, into Mondawmin. And because of these rumors of unrest, the city shut down the bus system. They stopped the buses from running from Mondawmin Mall. So you had kids that were on the buses ready to go home. They'd heard all the same rumors and they were trying to get home. And the police in riot gear came up and told them to get off the buses. Teachers were coming and trying to drive them home out of the area. Kids were stranded. There were thousands of kids who were stranded and there were police and riot gear. And it is still not known in Baltimore City who gave the order to stop the buses. We still don't know that. And it seems like that was just the spark that set off all of the unrest. Public transportation is a huge problem. And that was made very evident when the buses shut down. And we had this layer of police brutality in this one particular case that was just one of many that people had been worried about in Baltimore and complaining about for a long time. 
all of those things on top of each other, combined with this history of residential segregation, disinvestment in certain areas, while other areas of Baltimore City are well invested, that whole history just came to a fore in 2015 and had a predictable result. It's too much, I don't know if I could do this Bodies piling as high as the excuses They lynched a man last night with new nooses Past the panic zone, you ain't know it's bootless They shooting first, if we looting it's cause they owe us 40 acres of pipe green, they sold us The old leaders either locked dead or doped up Or sold us out for some camera time Don't fuck around, get a close up I ain't never scared, that's bone crush Turn a pig to a cold cut Turn this into something global They tuning in, we showing up Got new weapons too Blood, sweat, love and the truth Call us thugs on the news But we know what's up The people ain't fooled like you think Got about the clean Now we on the brink Round the corner for some real shit Popping up, that's the type of thing You can't predict it It's not vindictive It's not specific Or is it? It's been building up to this minute Now it's on We don't call it a riot We call it an uprising Because it was a collective response To oppression One of the things that people need to keep in mind And one of the reasons we call it a rebellion is because this was happening all over the country. Many people don't know that between 1960 and 1972, there were more than 1,000 recorded urban civil disturbances or riots in the United States. In naming it that, you bring yourself closer to the reality that brought it into being. In naming, in calling it a rebellion, See, if it's a riot, people think a riot's like after the basketball game, college, after the soccer game, Europe. You know, they think of some trivial reason. Understandable excitement. Red Sox fans waited 18 years for a trip back to the World Series. Some fans took the celebration too far. mischief in the streets and damaging property. I also condemn in the harshest words possible the actions of the punks last night who turned our city's victory into an opportunity for violence and mindless destruction. You know, but when you say rebellion, everybody knows that when you say rebellion, you're talking about something civic, something social, something really serious happened when you say rebellion. The shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown has opened a wound in the community. The violence which erupted in the anger following a candlelight vigil has taken place in Ferguson, a suburban St. Louis. Because most people at some point in their own histories, you know, if you're Irish, you know about the Irish rebellion, <laughs> you know, you American, you know about <laughs> American Revolution. It's only when you come to black people that the idea of people using force to change or to address their situation becomes taboo. Last night again in suburban St. Louis, the scene that photographers captured looked like a police state. Using the same tactical getup and the same weaponry we've come to expect in urban warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, police in Ferguson, Missouri once again had to put down and head off violence in the streets following the shooting days ago of a young unarmed black man who was supposed to head off to college this week. Now in the American Revolution, all kind of force was used. People don't talk about human rights when 
they tarred and feathered Tories up, up there in West Orange here in New Jersey. You know, people don't call the Boston Tea Party a riot. That was a riot, you know. They, I mean, they dressed up like somebody else and went and destroyed the property, threw the tea overboard. But when black people, oh no, black people cannot bear arms. Look, when Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Thaddeus Stevens went to Abraham Lincoln and told him that he needed to put arms in the hands of the people who had the biggest vested interest in winning this civil war, he winced. <laughs> because what's the immediate thought? Well. We put guns in their hands, they're gonna get revenge for what, what we did to them for the past 200 years. Well, I don't think you can ever predict a riot, though, and Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, it has a particular singularity and its distinctiveness that you've got a lot of oppressive conditions, you've got levels of social misery, but they can be in place for a while and there's still no riot. And what is it that America has failed to hear? Usually there's a particular moment where the righteous indignation spills over because people can just no longer take it. It's failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It could be a police killing a fellow citizen. It could be an act of violence, an ugly act of a violation of, of respect of somebody. It's got to be something that's deeply psychic and it touches the spirit of a people. They reach the point where they actually engage in rebellion. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. And I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America to a large extent. This is where we are at this point, and I think white America will determine how long it will be and which way we go in the future. In the last 40 or 50 years old, it tends to have to do with the relations of everyday people with the raw violence of the nation state in the form of the police, in the form of police murder, police violence, police brutality. Uh, that's not the only one, but that tends to be the one. Now, of course, Rodney King got beat up in L.A. That was major in 92. What most Americans saw when they watched Rodney King struck 56 times by white policemen, a jury saw different. We the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant Lawrence M. Powell not guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to produce great bodily injury and with a deadly weapon. And that had to do very much with police violence and police abuse. 
But there's something about the public display of raw violence on people, especially innocent people, where people reach the point they just can't take it any longer. There's got to be some kind of resistance that spills over beyond uh, legal means. There hasn't been a decade since 1967 when there wasn't an urban uprising somewhere in the United States of America. I mean, look at what happened after Rodney King in Los Angeles, in Cincinnati, in Florida, in Liberty City. You know, I mean, every decade there's been some uprising. I think that uh, massive oppression goes hand in hand with forms of resistance. And, uh, and riots oftentimes are forms of resistance and therefore they're unavoidable and inescapable. That they're always already there as possibilities and as long as you have you know, um, economic exploitation, cultural degradation, uh, psychic put down, injury and assault on a chronic basis, you're gonna have riots and rebellions. for me to believe that in this day and age, 2014, so many years after Dr. Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, we're seeing National Guard troops on the street to prevent this kind of violence in this day and age. It's something I didn't think we'd be seeing again. It would be interesting if the corporate media turned the cameras on the daily funerals of the young brothers and sisters who died before 18 years old. If they kept track of the dilapidated housing if they really went inside the school system, not first and foremost the prison system, they make big money on that, but the school system. A follow a young brother and sister trying to get a job, year in, year out, still unemployed. Get a job, underemployed, no trade union to protect them. Follow that and then make the connection between this one moment and this catalyst, police brutality, and then the righteous indignation. And then you say, put yourself in their shoes. How long would you remain? silent? How long would you remain complacent? How long would you remain contented? Put yourself in their space. Get out of your own egocentric predicament and conceive of the world through the lens of somebody else. Get your feet in somebody else's shoes for a while and you see what the world is like. Good evening. Our top story is breaking right now in Baltimore, where rioting has broken out in the streets. A state of emergency was declared in St. Louis County today. This is a scene that uh, a lot of us never anticipated seeing. Violent clashes between police and roving groups have left several officers injured and turned one West Baltimore neighborhood into chaos. After calls for racial justice last night were drowned out by the sounds of gunfire. Hard to believe this is going on, as they keep saying, in a major American city. I don't remember seeing anything like this in the United States. States of America in a long time. So Wolf Blister saying, I can't believe this is happening now. What he's saying is, I can't believe this is happening up under black man. Well, you know what? I tell people all the time, Black Lives Matter starts under black president. There's no excuse for the kind of violence that we saw yesterday. It is counterproductive. When individuals get crowbars and start prying open doors to loot, they're not protesting. They're not making a statement. They're stealing. When they burn down a building, they're committing arson. They're destroying and undermining businesses and opportunities in their own communities that rob jobs and opportunity from 
uh, people in that area. So grapple with that shit. Like, let's figure how does that happen? Because at the end, Barack Obama played his role in keeping the empire going. He escalated expectations so high. This audacity of hope that he talked about really did seize the hearts, minds, and souls, and bodies of a lot of people. I stand before you again tonight, after almost two terms as your president, to tell you I am more optimistic about the future of America than ever before. And once you have rising expectations shattered, Black Lives Matter on the black president says it all. That's indictment. It's indictment. You've got a black president, black attorney general, black head of Homeland Security, and black folk voted and supported all three of them, but the police still killing young black youth week in and week out. And you can't stop it other than some investigation that takes a year and so forth. So you say, oh, I see, this must be systemic. This is not a question of another brilliant black face in a high imperial place. This is a systems problem. It's got to do with plutocrats, military-industrial complex. It's got to do with how white supremacy is used and deployed to hide and conceal grotesque wealth inequality and domination of workers at the workplace and the homophobia and transphobia is ways of targeting the vulnerable and the poor and the uh, politically weak in order to distract persons from dealing with some of the real sources of social misery in the world. And, you know, Obama's neoliberal policies uh, just ran out of gas. I think there was an assumption that if a black man was elected president, black people would be good. But Barack Obama is also a person who helps and has helped perpetuate white supremacy and militarism. There's no like indicator, no statistic that anyone could pull up that shows a marked material resource improvement for black people in this country, for poor people in this country, that includes black people, but poor whites, poor everybody else. Nothing materially changed. Things got worse, right? He represents the Democratic Party and the platform. He does not represent black liberation and freedom or what that looks like. So that's what Will Blitzer was saying. I can't believe under a black president that we could be seeing rebellions, right? But, you know, the police have been this way since the founding of this country towards black people. It's usually against police conduct that rebellions happen in our communities. So this is the situation that we're faced uh, with today. And this is why these struggles continue to come up. It was police brutality that triggered the rebellion of 1967. Colin Kaepernick takes a knee in protest of police brutality because police brutality continues to this day. You know, Michael Brown is killed two years ago. In the two years since Michael Brown was killed, the police have killed 2,500 people in the United States. In 2015, 1,136 people. In this year, 2017, so far, 736 people. On average, 1,000 people a year are killed by the police in the United States. In one year, the police in the United States killed more people than the police in Great Britain killed in the 20th century. 
Since 1968, 148 or more black people are killed by the police every year in the United States. And this is why this, this thing keeps churning, why the, the, the issue won't go away. You know, people like, well, we elected a black president, so that means we're like a post-racial nirvana now, right? Hello, Chicago! And, you know, and obviously the events of the time show us that, that we are far away from that. Smashing everything that's in my radius You got no choice but for attention to be paid to this Ain't no permission slip like this is a parade and shit Barriers we breaking, we ain't asking, no we taking it It's warfare, overall motion in the flesh Opening your chest if you're posing as a threat Our grandparents fought for this country and they in debt How many gon' be left when they turn the age to collect? Now I ain't waiting on the answer this time Just cut the check, our stack, double T, it's sudden death Said we ain't trying to hit a puck to a neck This what happens when you Treat a whole people like something less Front line of the picket, but I ain't riding no fence Done riding letters, we riding now What's next? Who next? Who vexed? Who got the trauma but not the words? Who ready to converse in the language of the young heard? Ah. Front line of the picket, but I ain't riding no fence Done riding letters, we riding now What's next? Who next? Who vexed? Who got the trauma but not the words? Who ready to converse in the language of the young heard? Of course, when I looked at Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray and Ferguson after the, the death of Michael Brown, of course it brought back memories of what happened in 1967. My fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. You know, people talk a lot today about terrorism, of course. And we talk about military occupations in other countries, but I can remember the first night I saw the guard roll up 16th Avenue. Now I was 13, I didn't know any difference between the National Guard and the Army. They all had on green uniforms, so they were all Army to me, right? From our second floor apartment, you could see them rolling up, you know, as a kid, I had seen all these war movies, but I had never seen a tank until July of 1967, because the guard had half tracks. A half track is a small tank in which one man sits, but it has a big automatic cannon, not a rifle, but a cannon. And you see these half tracks covered up the street. You know, it's like, this is stuff you saw in the movies, but now it's happening in real life. You see these half tracks coming up, you see these military trucks and jeeps, trucks filled with men, jeeps filled with men, men with rifles, men with gun on their hips, with helmets and everything. And they actually set up a little checkpoint for a couple of days right in our intersection. When the state of emergency was declared and the martial law went into effect, we couldn't leave the house. So there were like several days we couldn't leave the house to go get food. I'm tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois has agreed to serve as chairman. Well, the Kerner Commission was pulled together by Lyndon Johnson. And the purpose of the Kerner Commission was to, in, in essence, tell the government why black people were so mad that they were rising up in the streets. And the Kerner Commission issued a report 
called the Kerner Commission Report. Now it's interesting, there's a whole history behind the Kerner Commission Report. But even before the Commission begins its work, and even before all the evidence is in, there are some things that we can tell about the outbreaks of this summer. They actually issued a first draft, and the first draft was killed because Johnson and others felt that the first draft was too radical. Now imagine that, a government report that the government kills because they think it was too radical. First, uh, let there be no mistake about it. The looting and arson and plunder and pillage which have occurred are not part of a civil rights protest. There is no American right to loot stores or to burn buildings or to fire rifles from the rooftops. That is crime. And crime must be dealt with forcefully and swiftly and certainly under law. So they toned down the Kerner Commission report and issued the, what became the official Kerner Commission report. And it said that America was moving toward two societies, one black and one white. This is our basic conclusion. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. That's the line that everybody remembers. To pursue our present course will involve the continuing polarization of the American community and ultimately the destruction of basic democratic values. The alternative will require a commitment to national action, compassionate, massive, and sustained, backed by the resources of the most powerful and richest nation on the earth. From every American, it will require new attitudes, new understanding, and above all, new will. Despite its shortcomings, I think it's a very valuable report and does help give insight into what happened and why it happened and also makes recommendations, some of which are still relevant for today. One of the reasons the Kerner Commission report remains relevant is because the fundamental condition that the report attempted to address has not been changed. The irony is 50 years after the Kerner Commission report was issued, we're still two separate societies. In fact, in some ways, the United States is more racially segregated today than it was in 1968 when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. New Jersey, for instance. New Jersey is more segregated than some of the states in the South. Our school system, I believe, is the fifth most segregated school system in the country. And the irony of it is, is that a lot of this segregation occurred after 1968, after 1967, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, all the other acts. We're actually more racially segregated. They start dragging me through the street. A riot is the language of the unheard. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. My fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white. Separate, Separate and unequal. What most Americans saw when they watched Rodney King struck 56, 56 times by white police, a jury saw different. The shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown has opened a wound in the community. 
the violence which the erupted streets. violent clashes between police and roving groups have left right several officers in injured and last night people asking for peace in los angeles protesters joining hands making a statement as the country moves We don't need normalcy anymore. We need like visionaries, intellectual, like organizers that are also like can put theory to practice and practice the theory. We need people to shape things up, to drop ideas that someone's gonna think you're crazy and 10 years later is gonna be like, I see it now. You know, we need disruptors. We don't just know people that now know how to be part of a movement that's almost a formula. It's like you can open up a book and be like step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to doing a protest. Well, nah, that's not how protests or rebellions are supposed to always happen. People rise up when they've exhausted every other form of redress. You don't think black people go to city council meetings. You don't think black people write their elected representatives make phone calls to their Congress people, you know, have meetings. They do all the stuff. We do all the stuff that white people do. But our issues continue to be either ignored or inadequately addressed. You know, every now and then there's some token gesture made, you know, and then there's a big celebration, and then we go back to business as usual. People rise up when they just can't take it anymore. You know, if, I mean, no one plans a rebellion. They're not planned. There's no group planning and executing these things. These things are spontaneous reactions to oppression. And they will continue to happen as long as people remain oppressed. It's about justice, so I'd rather not comprehend It was burn loot, breaking curfew, rushing the gate Your poverty ain't safe, your poverty ain't safe For the moral, it's physical, that's different from a law Cause they never seem to get to the cause nah, Live in fear like a real uprising is gonna occur And explode like a dream bird nah, Live in fear like a real uprising is gonna occur And explode like a dream bird nah, Live in fear like a real uprising is gonna occur And explode like a dream 